You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. going to jump here into Colossians chapter 3, so you're welcome to turn into your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, continuing our series here in Colossians. I'm going to give everybody a heads up, uh, especially men. Men, this one's going to land hard with all of us, all right? So uh, I hope your sides, your ribs are ready to be jabbed. Um, I, I might have it worse because I get the glare uh, from my wife uh, from the third row and have to sit down back next to her after I get done with everything. So um, I, I feel you on, on this. Um, you'll notice that I've titled this sermon Household Codes, or Household Code. And the, the title is, is kind of pointing to what Paul is really going after, which are these household codes. In the ancient uh, world in which he's speaking into, there, were, uh, there was a set of household codes, a way in which the home operated. Of course, we're, we're pretty familiar with, with codes of conduct, right? Codes of conduct. We see it in um, you know, the workplace. There's codes of conduct of how we're to operate. There's various organizations that have codes of conduct, right? Doctors, lawyers, counselors all work from a code of conduct. And these codes of conduct, right, help us um, kind of give us a clear statement of what the role of each person might be, including the limitations of their role as well as the expectations of their role. And so Paul enters into this household code section of Colossians 3 uh, to speak into um, and knowing that it's going to push against kind of the codes of conduct in the current ancient world at that time. I want to give us just a little bit of a picture of what that would look like. Uh, For for the Roman Empire, the family actually was kind of the central uh, element that was very important to the economical strength of, of the empire. Um, the father would have been seen as the one who was in charge of the entire household. Now that household would obviously include his wife and, and children, but it may also include extended family. It would include the servants. It could include orphans and others and, and any element that would be part of that household was all under the rule of the father. And so the household was to then give reverence to the father, to submit under his rule in the home. And there were those homes that that were good examples, that were managed well, that people were treated well, but there were many, many homes that that were poorly managed, people that uh, that were treated harshly. And so Paul understands the environment and the culture he's speaking into when he's going to give these household codes. Some of it, as we read it with this already in mind, some of what I've already just said seems pretty normal to us. Like we understand a little bit of that structure. And so there's some obvious, thing, obvious things that Paul is going to say, but then there's gonna be some surprise things that he emphasizes as he gives this instruction. We need to back up. We're gonna be focusing on verses 18 through the first verse in chapter four. 
Uh, and I, I want to read first, though, verse 17. I'm going to read 17 down to uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. But I want you to take verse 17 and allow that, and I'll explain it a little bit more here in a minute, but allow that to be kind of the lens that we see verses 18 through 4.1, okay? So starting Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those, everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I had to start at verse 17 because this is kind of the central ethic, right? An ethic is a central truth that helps us know what is best. Um, I always try to think through, okay, how do we explain these things? My, my mind often goes to things I'm very familiar with. And so I think of when I, when I go backpacking, uh, often I'm not able to carry, nor do I want to carry, all the water I need for that trip. And so I use a filter to filter the water from the, the, the streams, right? That, that filter uh, draws out anything that could be harmful to me, draws it out so that I have clean water to drink from. And an ethic works in a very similar way. It helps us kind of have a, a, a siphon in which we run our, our, our whatever thing we're facing, run it through kind of this sieve to, to get out the impurities so that we can see what our decisions should be on the other end. Now, just like with a water filter for backpacking, you can choose not to bring that. You can just dip your cup in the stream and take a drink and, and it's very likely that you end up with some bug that's gonna show up in your system. But by using one, you're less likely to become ill. And so it is with an ethic that it, it, it helps drive us back to some central truth. And verse 17 is that central truth that this next section is just flowing out from. So the picture here that we've seen all the way up until this point is this, that because we are united with Christ, because we died with him and live with him and Christ is our life, that means his name is on us. We belong to him. His reputation is shown in us. And so the picture here is that what you do, you represent the name of Christ. That's why you see in 1 Peter 2.12 where it says, show the honor of the name of Christ among the Gentiles, among the world. It's what he says in Romans 2 as a warning, because of your disobedience, God's name is being blasphemed among the nations because of you. So we've got to realize what's at stake here. We carry the name of Jesus Christ in the way we relate to others. And so this is, this is why we're, we're, we're gonna spend time talking about 
wives and husbands and children and parents, the workplace and the way we interact with specific relationships. This is why, to, to connect all the dots here, right? That between our relationships with each other, our marriages, our families, and any other relationship that we have, have a huge effect on this mission of representing Christ well in the world around us. There's questions that our culture is constantly asking about in marriage and abortion and sexual immorality and all these things that are prevalent within our relationships that we have with our culture. And they're looking at us and going, what does Christianity represent? What does Christianity say? And so we need to look deeply at what it means for Christ to affect our relationships with each other, our marriages, our homes, And the whole picture, because the name of Christ is being displayed to the nations through his people. That's why he designed it. And if we take this lightly, that it may be said of us then, as it was said in Romans 2, that God's name is blasphemed among the nations because of you. So we have to look at this. We have to take it seriously. We must honor the name of Christ before the world. We must honor the name of Christ in southern New Hampshire. We must honor the name of Christ in all the nations. What a neat day for this to land on in the dedication time for our children and looking at kind of the, the, the impact the gospel is having in, in South Africa and Narnia. And man, what, what a neat thing for us to then say, okay, well, what about my home? What about my workplace? What I love is that Paul uh, does so well, he starts to talk about individual relationships. And what we're gonna notice is throughout these verses that follow, he always talks about how everything is flowing from the Lord. One of the small group questions that that we'll be putting out has us looking at kind of phrases that are repeated. And we see the Lord, as unto the Lord, right? Kind of come up over and over. Everything is submission to the Lord. To his name. Everything under the authority of his name. That every relationship that I have, my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my children, my relationship with you, my relationship with those who don't yet know Christ, my relationship with the people who I work with here on staff at Hope, the whole picture, it's all dominated by the lordship of Christ. Every relationship is under the lordship of Christ. And so two items that I want us to remember as we head into this section, right, that serve as our ethic, our filter as we head in. One is everything I do is to be under the lordship, the guidance, the direction of Jesus. That's a a posture that says I am under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, everything I do is to be wrapped up in thankfulness to God who has provided us with everything we have in this life. So the first idea in ethic, everything I do is under the lordship of Jesus. And secondly, everything I do is to be wrapped up in thankfulness to God who has provided us with everything we have in this life. And so we're gonna go into this section kind of chunk by chunk. And you'll you'll notice it's kind of, uh, the, the, the word for it is there's couplets here, right? You can't take one phrase all by itself and think, well, that's where the main emphasis is. In fact, I would argue as the text goes, the main emphasis is on the head of the household, men. The responsibility is yours to bear in this. But you can't just pluck out one line. For the verses 18 and 19, you can't just choose to emphasize verse 18. You can't just choose to emphasize verse 19. 
when it's talking about children. You can't just focus on the children and their role. You can't just focus on the fathers or the parents either. With servants and masters, the same thing here. And there's some cultural things that we're gonna have to walk through and think through, which is important for us to understand and understand in the context. One thing Paul does a great job at, he has a couple options, just like we have a couple of options. We can look at the things that are happening in this world and say, I need to call it out. I need to name that sin and I need to spend my energy just saying, hey, that's wrong, hey, that's wrong, hey, that's wrong, while I forget to model what is good and right within my own life. And so Paul is he's given a choice here. He can call out things that are being done wrong. In the structure within that ancient world with the family, the husband-wife relationship was not at all what we would think is okay in our culture today. Now he could spend all his time calling out what is wrong or he could spend time saying, Christians, live your life this way, which is gonna be different than the rest of the culture. And that's how you're gonna impact the culture. With the issue of slavery, and we'll get into it in more detail, he could spend all his time in saying, this is horrible, this is wrong, we need to reject this. Or he could say, listen, Christians, you need to operate your household differently. You need to model something better and allow that to change the culture. Here's what we're not gonna be able to accomplish this morning. We are not gonna be able to say everything we could say about marriage, We are not gonna be able to say everything we could say about parenting, and we are not gonna be able to say everything we could say about living in the workforce. But what I hope we can do here is have an understanding how this ethic in verse 17 flows through all of life, including our marriage relationships, our parenting, and in the workplace. Paul has a specific audience that he's speaking to and I'll try to help bridge the gap there for us as we go along. But first we jump into this area of the marriage. Verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. There's in the Lord statement again. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So the first statement there, wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. This was not a shocking statement the original audience. They would have understood, the the women present would have understood, well, yeah, thanks, Paul, that's helpful. Like, we understand that that's how it works, right? And there's probably few statements like this one that our Western ears do not like more than the word submit, right? And it's no wonder in a culture that is self-focused, right-seeking, and power-seeking as ours is, especially if submission is to be understood from a secular definition. According to the Oxford Dictionary, it says accepting, submission is accepting or yielding to a superior force or the will of another person. Then yes, this type of submission is to be feared. But what is the biblical understanding of submission that Paul is referencing here? In a parallel teaching, and and you'll have to forgive me because there's times where I'm gonna say Ephesians instead of Colossians because Ephesians teaches a much more in-depth approach to what we see here in Colossians. Colossians is kind of our spark notes of what he teaches in Ephesians, right? Uh, But in a parallel teaching from Paul on these household codes in Ephesians 5, Paul states that all believers are to, Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Again, that ethic 
of verse 17 showing up here. The Lord is master of all, and I am positionally under him. And so submit is not a call for menial bondage and silence. It's not coerced. It is to be freely and voluntarily entered into. None are called to submit to sin, irrationality, or harm of any kind. I think it's important that as you see this charge from Paul, and we'll get to the husband here in just a moment, but the husband is not called to make anyone do anything. He's not called to make the wife do ABC. He's not called to make his children do ABC. He is called to submit under the Lord as well. And so this charge that Paul is giving is for the function and well-being of the family unit, this, this home, uh, this, this code of, uh, of conduct, basically. It is the code of conduct that defines the roles and responsibilities of each member of the family. Specifically here, the wife and the husband. We're getting to you, don't worry. This charge to submit is for Christians who are living as Christians. The idea of submission works best when we understand our ultimate submission is under the Lord and the structure follows what he has designed. And I can say this because of how Paul structures his arguments here. The wife is not the primary focus. That was, this was not the shocking statement in the room. It is the marriage that is the primary focus under the headship of Christ that is the focus. So husbands, there's a command given to you here as well, to me as well. Submission of the wives was not the shocking thing for ancient ears to hear under their own normal household codes. The shocking statement is the one that follows. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In a culture that husbands would have seen their wives more as property than as companion, to have Paul state, love your wives, and we'll get into that kind of love that he uses here, and do not be harsh with them, is a little different than what they're used to hearing. And I wanna, I wanna read the, where this comes from, even in more of an expanded teaching from Paul in Ephesians 5. Here's what he says, and I think it's helpful for us to hear. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, who loves his wife he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
The language here, the language that we see in both Colossians and in Ephesians, you look at this relational language that's used here, this, this cherishing, this nourishing, this uplifting, this caring for, this I'm in this with you language that is used throughout this teaching. Husbands, you are given the command to love as Christ has loved the church. What an impossible task to give everything to her. As we, we'll, we'll break this down a little bit, but, but this language here, this way in which we are called to love as husbands, I don't know how you could read this and think it's okay to slander my wife in any way, to mistreat her in any way, to think of her as lesser in any way. Because I'm supposed to love her the way Christ loves me and gave himself for me. Husbands, we, we must love as Christ has loved the church. I told you we'd get to that word love and it's, there's different words that are used for love. In this instance, it's that agape love and for some of us, maybe that's a, a very familiar term but we need to understand that this kind of love is an unceasing care and loving service for the wife's entire well-being. And then it's modeled in Ephesians 5, we see it's modeled after Christ's love for his church, for his people. So I wanna highlight two areas that that we can model our love for our wives as Christ's love for the church. One, we see it incarnationally, and we see this in Ephesians 5, that we are to love our wives the way we love ourselves. We're, we're, We're to get to know how she functions, how she operates. To, to learn who she is as an individual so that you know ways in which you can encourage her and lift her up. She should know that you are valuable to her, valuable to you. Because this is a reflection on how God loves her. So you can see how this is flowing, right? I, I submit under the Lord's rule in my life. And as I care for those within my family, most primary is my relationship with my wife, and I am to reflect the love that Jesus has for me to her so that her view of the Lord is I see the love of Jesus through the love of my husband. To listen well to her so that you can care for her needs, not to just be aware, but to know specific ways that you can care for her. So it's incarnational. I, I care for her. I care for her as if, if she, as, as if she was my own body, the way I would care for myself. But it's also sacrificial. And this one, times, sometimes we say this very flippantly. Oh, yes, I, I would, sure, I would give up my life for my wife, right? Something happened, I would die for her, right? The, the, the petty things we see in any Hallmark movie, oh, I would die for that woman, right? Okay, great. Heard it 10,000 other times. Thank you, Hallmark. Right, it's easy to say, I'm willing to die for you. But not, not just in, in death, in finality, but, but can we, are we willing to be dying daily to seek her well-being above everything else, agape love, to that, that, that serving and caring for her well-being above everything else? Are we willing to die daily to serve well? This, this, the rubber hits the road. Here's where it hits for me, right? You've been given free tickets to the ball game. 
she's been at home all day with hoodlums that have been tearing apart your home. What do you do? Trick question, don't answer. Do not answer right now, okay? Right, right? this is where it, it, it hits though. Is we have to go, I know what she needs right now and I'm willing to die to this. And I know this is a petty thing, okay? It's just the most safe thing I can go to right now, all right? <laughs> I, I, I know what she needs in this moment because I, I walked through it, we've been through it, and I know I need to be like, okay, it's okay, the Red Sox will still be there. And I'll, I'll go over here and care for her and the kids. Sacrificial living modeled after Christ is that we learn not only to live for Christ, but for our wives as well. We should also pray for our wives. Are you familiar enough with her needs and the encouragement that she needs from the Lord to bring intercessory prayers to God for her? This means you, you know her well enough to have informed prayers to God on her behalf. You know her heart. You know her struggles. You know her fears. You know her joys. You're able to truly pray for her. So this kind of love and care for one's wife, again, filtered through our ethic in verse 17, reminds us that our marriage is a gospel window to the world around us. To have men who serve and care for their families well, to have family units that model Christ-like service to one another. Yes, kids, that means you. You're next, don't worry, we'll get there. But our family units are a gospel window that revealed to the world that God is on the throne and knows best how we function under his rule in life. It is not enough to be a power struggle within our family units, but it should be a beautiful picture of unceasing care and loving service toward one another's well-being. If we allow verse 17, that Christian ethic, to flow through our marriage relationships, it keeps us from choosing the extremes of these definitions. These brief words give us the pattern for fullness in Christian marriage. We see two radical calls here. One call call is to wives' submission. The other is to husbands, to love as Christ loves. Again, I've already said it, but they cannot be read in isolation. They go together. It's unthinkably absurd for a Christian husband to demand submission of his wife if he is not radically loving her. And likewise, it is errant logic for a wife who is not submission, not submissive to demand such love. So these brief words, they give us this pattern of Christian marriage. Full love, full commitment, full exchange, full blessing. Whether we are beginning, in the beginning stages of that or far along in our marriages, let us have no other goal than having the best marriage possible. Then we come to the parenting section. Again, Ephesians, Ephesians helps kind of expand on this. Here, the focus is mainly on the fathers because I do believe in this section he is speaking directly to the men in this, and so the emphasis is there, but the principles are helpful for both mom and dad. 
And kids, this is your part. You've probably had to quote this while you're sitting in the corner. If you're like me, you're sitting in the corner, bar of soap in your mouth because of some trashy thing you said, and you're, you're, going, you're having to repeat this verse because you've just done something horrible, right? Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord, right? You begin to say it spitefully as you grow up year after year. But, but, but the, the truth is there, and what we're gonna get to is this principle flowing in from verse 17 to help us understand the structure, the discipline, the organization of the home, how it can lead to something that is healthy and good or lead to something that is destructive. There's a story that Dr. James Dobson uh, shares, and I wanted to share that with you. He says here, he began his life, he's not talking about himself, he began his life with all the classic handicaps and disadvantages, His mother was a powerfully built, dominating woman who found it difficult to love anyone. She had been married three times and her second husband divorced her because she beat beat him up regularly. Hmm. The father of the child I'm describing was her third husband. He died of a heart attack a few months before the child's birth. As a consequence, the mother had to work long hours from his earliest childhood. She gave him no affection, no love, no discipline, and no training during those early years. She even forbade him to call her at work. Other children had little to do with him, so he was alone most of the time. He was absolutely rejected from his earliest childhood. When he was 13 years old, a school psychologist commented that he probably didn't even know the meaning of the word love. During adolescence, the girls would have nothing to do with him and he fought with the boys. Despite a high IQ, he failed academically and finally dropped out during his third year of high school. He thought he might find acceptance in the Marine Corps. They reportedly built men and he wanted to be one, but his problems went with him. The other Marines laughed at him and ridiculed him. He fought back, resisted authority, and was court-martialed and thrown out of the Marines with an undesirable discharge. So there he was, a young man in his early 20s, absolutely friendless. He was small and scrawny in stature. He had an adolescent squeak in his voice. He was balding. He had no talent, no skill, no sense of worthiness. Once again, he thought he could run from his problems, so he went to live in a foreign country, but he was rejected there also. While there, he married a girl who had been an illegitimate child and brought her back to America with him. Soon, she began to develop the same contempt for him that everyone else displayed. She bore him two children, but he never enjoyed the status and respect a father should have. His marriage continued to crumble. His wife demanded more and more things that he could not provide. Instead of being his ally against the bitter world as he had hoped, she became his most vicious opponent. She could outfight him and she learned to bully him. On one occasion, she locked him in the bathroom as punishment. Finally, she forced him to leave. He tried to make it on his own, but he was terribly lonely. After days of solitude, he went home and literally begged her to take him back. He surrendered all pride. Despite his meager salary, he brought her $78 as a gift, asking her to take it and spend it any way she wished. But she belittled his feeble attempts to supply the family's needs. She ridiculed his failure. At one point, he fell on his knees and wept bitterly as the darkness of his private nightmare enveloped him. Finally, in silence, he pleaded no more. No one wanted him. No one had ever wanted him. The next day, he was a strangely different man. He arose, went to the garage, took down a rifle he'd hidden there. He carried it with him to his newly acquired job at a bookstore storage building 
And from a window on the third floor of that building, shortly after noon, November 22nd, 1963, he sent two shells crashing into the head of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Lee Harvey Oswald, the rejected, unlovable failure, killed the man who more than any other man on earth at the time embodied all the success, beauty, wealth, and family affection which he lacked. In firing that rifle, he utilized the one skill he had learned his entire miserable lifetime. The charge we have before us is to care well for our children. There is no charge for them to obey if there is not a charge to also discipline and guide our children well. Children are given the tasks to obey, which means they have parents who are engaged with them, that are giving them direction in life. The point is, we have here a simple and powerful command to all children to truly, from the heart, obey their parents. Neglect of this command brings great sorrow. If not, then surely later, if not now, then surely later in life. But if obeyed, brings fullness. But as with the marriage relationship, the focus is not mostly on the most obvious subject, the children. This shocking command is placed on the father and the parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Fathers, briefly, we should discipline with the motivation of encouragement to provide our children with godly and healthy direction and expectation for this life, which is Colossians 3.17, to be lived with Christ at the center. To provide them in that direction and discipline, patience. To provide them consistent and stable direction. To spend more time listening and actively loving. And parents, especially fathers, because you should be leading the way in this, if we want to have all the fullness in our primary family relationships that God would have for us, we must discipline our children. To refrain from discipline is an act of hatred toward our own. I read the story to give us a a glimpse of a, a real individual who's neglected over and over and over again early on, which led to this hatred of self and not even understanding what love looks like. Our discipline must be given with encouragement, however. We must be patient, not irritable. While strict, we must not be over strict. We must look for ways to say yes as well as no. We must be consistent and stable in our direction and we must spend time with our own listening and loving well. In this household, set of household codes, work was right in with this. This particular time in which Paul is speaking into, slaves were a common part of that culture, that society. And honestly, this is probably the most shocking section that they, the listeners would have heard in that moment. Because imagine as this letter was being read, 
to a group of people that would have been situated a lot differently than we are right now. The men would have been towards the front, the closest to hear and to listen. The women would follow, the children to follow would have been hanging out with the servants, the slaves, who were either in the back or outside of the crowd. And Paul has the audacity to say, listen, servants, I want want you to hear this. And they hear these words from Paul. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Again, he leads with the most obvious, easy thing to understand, right? But he gives them an understanding of how they're to obey, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Verse 17 again. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. He's speaking to this crowd. Ancient historians estimate that there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, almost half of the population. And there's various reasons why one would have found themselves in slavery. There was debt could be owed through conquering nations. But because of this, work was considered below the dignity of the slave-owning Roman free man. Practically everything was done by slaves, even doctoring and teaching. So while Paul would have had every reason and the capability to attack slavery head-on, he chose to do something that, if lived out, would completely revolutionize this practice. It would eventually, with these principles laid out that Paul gives, it would bring the downfall of slavery as an institution. In the ancient world, this was a domestic matter. It was part of the household. It was intensely personal, an intensely personal family matter. Today, the application for us is largely professional as we are either the employee or the employer. But the principles that Paul lays out still apply to our working relationships today. Paul provides the Christian work ethic. He says, employee, don't work for the approval of your master or your employer. That's not your ultimate goal. Do your work in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. He is the one who's watching and will reward those who work in a way that is honorable. You are ultimately serving the Lord in the area of your work. He understands it's easy to look the part while the boss is looking, right? I think of when, I'm, when I was coaching football, right? There's always that kid when you're trying to do push-ups, right? You look at him and he's like, mm, perfect form, right? You turn your back and he's like, oh, right? Like we get it. He wants, I gotta look good. Gotta look good right now, right? Don't wanna get yelled at more, all right? I want this to end, all right? Uh, we're, we're not to work just when the boss is looking. We're to work knowing that I'm, I'm doing this whatever task it is, however unimportant I find it, However difficult I find it, I'm doing it to be pleasing to the Lord, to honor God through my work, to reveal, to be a window of the gospel through my work. The master, the employer, treat your employee fairly and with dignity, knowing that the Lord is your master. For Christians in this culture, in this ancient culture, and in ours, The area of work was another opportunity that God would show the world that there was a better way. One not motivated by earthly success, but one that provided an opportunity to worship God and reveal to the world 
a better way for how people would be treated and how one viewed their identity in work. The guiding reality for the master employer is that he and his servant or employee have the same Lord. The theologian Alexander McLaren said this, employers, if you truly realize that you must answer to God for the way you conduct yourself with your employees, you will care about what happens to them. You will be concerned that they are paid properly. You will be concerned about their illnesses, their spouses, their children, their education. And along with this, you may have more problems. In fact, this kind of caring attitude assures that you will. But you will also have the fullness of Christ. Too often, Christians spend more time arguing about the wrong in this world while forgetting to model before the world a better way to live. Too often, when we see things going wrong in this world, we are just content to point out all the wrong without looking into our own little spheres to see how we are living out a better way. And I want to remind us of where we started. Colossians reminds us that we are united with Christ because we died with him and live with him and Christ is our life. So that means his name is on us. We belong to him and his reputation is shown through us. The way we conduct ourselves in this life, from our marriages to our parenting to what we do at work, we are providing a window for the gospel of Jesus to be modeled before a watching world. There is a time, please hear me say, there is a time to call out the wrongdoing of our world and our culture and our towns and our decision makers, but we must not neglect the power of God working through us as we live out these principles, as we care well for our our marriages, as we care well as parents, as we care well within our workplace. Paul understood this well as he taught these principles for Christians to live by. He understood that these things would have more impact on a society than arguing to an unbelieving world about what they were doing wrong. It embraces the principle that Jesus put forward that Christians are to be both light and salt. The way we live is to be attractive to the world, something that draws them closer to Jesus. At the end of the day, I ought to be able to gather my family around the dinner table and know that I have led them well to make Jesus central. Jesus, who is the fullness of the universe, wants us to be full in our marital relationships, our family relationships, and our professional relationships. Beyond this, he desires that this fullness overflow to the world, that it be a window to the rest of the world. Justin Martyr says it well, our Lord urged us with patience and meekness to lead all from shame and the lust of evil, and this we have, have to show in the case of many who have come in contact with us, who are overcome and changed from violent and tyrannical characters, either from having watched the constancy of the Christian neighbors or from having observed the wonderful patience of, of Christian travelers who were overcharged or from doing business with Christians. As people interact with us, our love for Jesus should draw them closer to having their own love for Jesus. I want to read a, a short poem and then we'll, we'll close out. 
And this poem here, I want us to see it to help us think about why we live our lives for Jesus as a life for others to consider. And so here, here's the, the poem, it's t- entitled Consider. Here I go again, living life for only me. If only his face for a moment I see, while busy with life, too much to slow down, if only in this moment I take a moment and bow. Have I taken that moment to give him my time? Without a second thought, I have run my own way. But this moment is his, as it feels so sublime. Take me now and let me consider all that is thine. Consider the tree that he bore, cracked, splintered, rugged, and worn. Carry it to, carried it to his moment of death. This tree once alive bore death upon death. The crowds are heard as my thoughts linger on. The laughter and mocking spew forth all around. I see my face and I hear my words standing in this crowd, allowing hate to abound. Consider the thorns, the blood and his flesh, hanging alone and gasping for breath, writhing as face after face turned away until alone he was bearing my shame. Dark of night the earth awakens, for never had such a moment been taken. Death to the Christ and with him my sin, spotless yet slaughtered without sin from within. Consider his death, all men must embrace. His pierced hand is extended, all doubt flies away. For this is the God-man who rose without disgrace, completed the task to love me today. And this is my story left to consider that we all have found ourselves lost and alone, yet he left his throne to amend what was done. The mocker becomes heir, united with the son. Is this me? And for what I have done? No credit is due, but only for one. He came with all love and I did reject, yet now with torn heart, I take it as my own. My story, it seems, is not all unique, but does cause one to pause to think. This Christ who has come forsaken for me, on the cross he did go for sin to defeat. Now my life is lived with only one thought. Consider this the plan for man he has bought. No thought of my own, but his pulsing through. My life will now be lived, a life to consider. So in our marriages, make Jesus first. In our parenting, make Jesus first. In our workplace, make Jesus first. In our illness, make Jesus first. In our suffering, make Jesus first. In our success, make Jesus first. In our death, leave a legacy that says, make Jesus first. Let's pray. Lord, we, we humbly come before you. We get in the way of so much of what you're trying to accomplish in this world. So Lord, forgive us where we have been me-focused. Lord, we desperately need you in our personal lives. We need you in in our our marriages. We need you as we parent. We, We need you as we go into our workplaces. Lord, there are so many challenges that we are faced with. And yet you have called us to simply live out our desire to make you first. So would that impact every facet of our lives? And would people be drawn to you? Because our desire is to live for you and show that to the world. Help us to do that. 
Help us to do that with excellence, to help posture ourselves under your lordship and to live it all for you. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.